People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is Stephen Kravitz's People of the Book. We've got a full show for today. Uh, hopefully I'll get through eight books within the hour. And to everybody that we do have a Facebook page and I'd like to see the the activity on the page increase because that just shows that people are listening to the show, they're interested in the books that we're discussing and they want to find out more about them. Uh, you go to Facebook, then you search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. That's the name for our specific page. That's People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And you'll find all the books that have been reviewed and mentioned on this show, both by me and by my guests, going back a year and a half, posted on that page. And I just started something new today. Uh, two of the books I'm going to review today are written by extremely well-known, high-powered people in the IT industry in America. And there are a number of re- really brilliant videos them being interviewed about the books that I'm going to review today. And I've posted those on the page as well. So if you are interested in the books and you find the topic very interesting, not only will you find a little blurb of these two books on the Facebook page, but there's videos as well. And I'm going to go straight into those two books because when I was planning the show, uh, I thought this is the perfect time, the week just after, the first Friday after Tisha B'Av, to look at the idea of grief, dealing with grief and finding the best ways that a person after they've suffered a great loss to find the best possible answers, advice, how to overcome the great suffering in life. Uh, the reason it's so good to do it this week is because Tisha B'Av was on Tuesday. That's the greatest tra- the day of the greatest tragedies in the Jewish calendar. So we are all dealing with grief. The 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 the, the year is structured in the way that we 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 are going to say for the next seven weeks on Shabbos we're going to say have Torahs of consolation in Shul. We've structured dealing with grief and then overcoming the debilitating. A paralysis that grief can create in a person is part of the the, the Jewish response uh, and the Jewish way to dealing with grief. But I thought it would be very good to look at two books that deal with this idea as well. Now, the first one is called Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience and Finding Joy. And it's written by, it's co-authored. The first author is Cheryl Sandberg and she is a person who her name, every, her name is famous. Everyone knows Cheryl Sandberg. Cheryl Sandberg is a business leader. She's a philanthropist. She's the chief operating officer at Facebook. And that position makes her extremely famous and extremely powerful. She wrote a book called Lean In a few years ago about women working. And she founded an organization, leanin.org. Lean to support all women in achieving their goals. She was previously the vice president of online sales at Google and a chief of staff at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. She lives in Northern California with her two children. Uh, the reason she was just with her two children is because just over a year ago, her husband tragically and very unexpectedly died while on a treadmill. They were on holiday. And she, all of a sudden, had to face life 
without the anchor of her life, her husband. And she sat Shiva, she's Jewish, and in the interview where she is interviewed by her co-author, Adam Grant, at, who teaches at Wharton University, and the interview happened at Wharton University, and I've posted on our Facebook page, she actually says that Adam came to visit her when she was sitting Shiva, and she asked him to stay afterwards, and she said, you're a psychologist, you will be able to help me get through this difficult situation. And from that conversation eventually came this book, this very, very productive collaboration between Cheryl Sanders and Adam Grant. Now, Adam Grant is the co-author. He's a psychologist, and he's Wharton's top-rated professor, and he's also the best-selling author of Originals and also the book Give and Take. He's a leading expert on how we can find motivation and meaning and live more generous and creative lives. And so you have these two top people in America dealing with the issues of facing adversity, building resilience and finding joy through dealing with grief. Now, the book's got three parts. There's Cheryl's specific story and how she used specific advice and steps from Adam to overcome her sense of absolute loss. There's also the research that Adam Grant, who's an academic psychologist, contributes, uh, showing his, 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 his big point that he wants to make in this book um, is that resilience isn't something that you're born with or you don't have. There's a certain amount that you have. Resilience is like a muscle. If you work out on the resilience muscle, you will become more resilient. And life is always going to need resilience in order to get through the difficult times. And that's a lot of his uh, research that, uh, uh, that, 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 that's in the second part. And the third part of the book is looking at and exploring how a broad range of people have overcome great, great difficulties, whether it's illness, whether it's job loss, whether it's assault, whether it's natural disasters or the violence of war, living in a war zone. It's the capacity of the human spirit to persevere and to rediscover joy. And just reading Cheryl Sandberg and listening to her speak, the 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 situation that she found herself in, needing people to help her and how to receive that help and how to build resilience and how to deal with adversity and how to, even in the loss of a loved one, still find the ability to experience joy again. It's very, very powerful. When you hear, when you read her, when you hear Cheryl uh, Sandberg, you, you realize that you're sitting or you're listening or you're reading the words of a person who has an unbelievable understanding of how people work, operating the highest levels of, of society. You know, she worked in the treasury in America. She headed up a big department at Google. She now is the, the COO at Facebook. But she is a human being with the most, most humane touch. And um, the book is a very, very valuable book in Lessons of Adversity. But 
the video as well, which I post on the web, on, on, on the Facebook page, even if you're not going to read the book, but, you know, do go out and get the book. But even if you're not going to read the book, listen to that video. The way that she finds the, the, the basic expressions of human, being a human and being a, a, a humane human. The, and the way that she puts that across, the simple things that we can do, it's very, very powerful. And they both actually want to, both Adam and uh, Cheryl, focus on this idea of collective compassion, that it's not just self-help. You know, it's like you read a book so you can help yourself. We also need help others. We have to learn and develop a capacity in ourselves that we can help others. And as a Jew, that's a central quality of the Torah, chesed, gomel chasadim, gemilus chasadim, doing acts of kindness to others. And that's a big point that both Adam and Cheryl make very, very clearly in option B, to extend beyond yourself to help others. We'll be back with the second book on dealing with uh, adversity, which is called Soul for Happy, after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We're looking at a second book on dealing with tragedy in one's life. And this is Solve for Happy by Mo Gaudat. Uh, It's published by Bluebird Books for Life. And it's also a very, very, very powerful book to read. It's, 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 uh, just, just the title needs just a, a one sentence of explanation and then it makes sense. Solve for Happy. Mo Gaudat is the chief business officer of Google X. Google X is a highly secretive division or unit within Google that deals with questions far beyond just, uh, search engines, you know, how to conquer death, that type of question. Um, he's a software engineer. And any problem that he encounter, you know, that an engineer encounters, they want to solve for the answer. So here he's saying happiness is a state of being that can be solved for. So he's, he's written a book based on more than a decade's worth of research on how to solve for happy. And, um, Almost a decade into his research on happiness as a, as a, as a problem, as a conceptual construct. And how do we solve for happy? He suffered a great tragedy in his life as well. His son Ali, uh, he was living in Dubai at the time. He was heading up Google's um, emerging markets unit and his son Ali had stomach pains. He was rushed to the closest hospital to where they were staying in Dubai and through a series of five miss Stakes that the doctors made, his son Ali, who needed an appendix, an appendicitis, died on the operating table, and that opened up a huge, huge black hole of grief in Malgodat's life. He decided to put all his research and his conclusions in how to solve for happiness to the test, and he applied everything that he he had researched to his own life and 17 days after his son died he sat down and he started writing and after four months he had 600 pages uh, he then posted what he had on a website to take input from other people who 
then joined his conversation over solving for happiness. And eventually it was produced as a book, which is now available. And he's made, um, he's, he's set a goal of touching 10 million people and helping them solve for happiness in their life. And that's his living memorial to his son, Ali. Now, it's, it's very strange because we think of happiness as a state of mind, not necessarily a, uh, and an emotion, not necessarily something that can be the, ob- the, 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 the subject of a, a, a mathematical equation. But that's what engineer, software engineers do, or people working at Google X. You have a problem. And then you work out an equation that will solve that problem, an algorithm. He did research to find an algorithm that will result in happiness. And, uh, this is, uh, this is the book that results. Now, the book is, it's, a, it's, it's, it would definitely fall into the self-help, uh, section of, uh, any bookshop or any library. Um, but it's, it's it's a person's real story. It's Mo Gaudat's real story, and he's interspersed his story throughout the book. And he he has a very very set equation or pathway to achieving happiness. Um, and he tells you what happiness is, what happiness happiness isn't, how he developed an equation, and then I just want to read a little bit. He has. A, like a map. And for most of the book where he's discussing how you achieve happiness, he has a map where he shows you how he works through the equation to get happiness. Um, he has a section which is called suffering. There's six grand illusions that we are presented with in the course of, course of our lives that create more suffering in us and hold us back from achieving happiness. So there's six great, six grand illusions. And it just one word for each of those. Thought, that's the first one. Self, third one is knowledge, then time, control, and fear. And then there are blind spots as well. Filters, assumptions, predictions, memories, labels, emotions, and exaggerations. And then finally you have the state of joy, which are his five ultimate truths. His, his, his distilled a decade's worth of research into three numbers, six, seven, and five. Those are the six grand illusions, the seven blind spots, and the five ultimate truths. And through the book, he takes you through the pathway, how to overcome the six grand illusions, how to make sure that you're not being affected by the seven blind spots, and how to achieve the five ultimate truths. And every chapter through the book, he's got a little map with the six and the seven and the five, and each word spelt out clearly, and he shows you, you are here, and now we're working through this aspect of the formula. And that is his formula. He says in chapter two, six, seven, five, a thought can take its thinker through years of suffering. Seeds of thought grow and grow until they become angry monsters. And yet we believe in our thoughts and let them take hold. Happiness depends entirely on how we control every thought. But contrary to common belief, we don't just experience two moods, happiness and sadness. Depending on the kind of thoughts we entertain, we may fall into a wider spectrum of states. And he has the state of joy at the top. Beneath that is the state of happiness. Beneath that, the state of escape. Beneath that, the state of suffering. And beneath that, the state of confusion. He goes through these, and then he shows you 
what we need to do in order to achieve happiness, to solve for happy. And he says here it's the following. This is Mo Gaudet in his book, Solve for Happy. A model for happiness. Every day of your life, new events will unfold. New expectations get set. And new happiness equations demands solutions. Most of us randomly move to a different state with each passing event. We've all made a few steps forward to happiness before plummeting into confusion. We've all found a shortcut by having fun for a brief moment before experiencing a patch of suffering. You've had enough of that, haven't you? A state of uninterrupted joy is attainable when you solve directly for it. And so, remember, you should never settle for anything less than joy. But reaching uninterrupted happiness is not as easy as spending a night out with friends, attending a yoga class, or buying a new car. There are illusions to bust, blind spots to fix, painkillers to reject, and finally, there are truths to ponder and grasp. It's time to start your happiness training. As an engineer, I'll give it to you in shorthand, in nowhere near as colorful a tone as the happiness gurus of today speak. But it's not rocket science. All you need to do is remember three numbers, six, seven, five. Here's how this works. There are six grand illusions that keep you in confusion. When you use these illusions, you try to make sense of life, but nothing seems to compute. The suffering runs deep and lasts long. Next, seven blind spots delude your judgment of the reality of life. The resulting distorted picture makes you unhappy. Eliminate the six illusions, fix the seven blind spots, and stop trying to escape, and you'll just reach happiness more often than not. But if you want your happiness to last, you must hang on to five ultimate truths. Put it all together and you have the happiness model. Bust the six grand illusions, fix the seven blind spots, and hang on to the five ultimate truths. Your training starts tomorrow. He says, see you at six. That's the six grand illusions. And he'll see you on chapter three of the book, Soul for Happy. That's Mo Gaudat's book, Soul for Happy. And is a testimony. It's a, it's a living memorial to his son who he lost um, tragically at the age, I think, of 21. And these are the two books that we looked at today. Option B, by Cheryl Sandberg, uh, the... Uh, the author of the best-selling Lean In and the COO of Facebook, written together with Adam Grant. And that she wrote after she lost her husband, tragically, at the, when he was only 48. And then Malgada, who's the chief business officer of Google X, his book, Solve for Happy. So we've got two people from the, the, the highest levels of the IT world and using their profound knowledge to deal with adversity. Both books are based on a huge amount of research. It's not just psychobabble. It's a lot of research and then specifically from the art industry with a lot of uh, a lot of a lot a lot of engineering around how to face adversity, be resilient, and ultimately both books live a life full of joy. We'll be back straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. We've just looked at two books uh, dealing with grief, dealing, dealing with tragedy, facing adversity, building resilience, and achieving not just happiness, but finding joy. The first one was Option B by Cheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant. Cheryl is the COO of Facebook. The second book is Solve for Happy by Mo Gaudat. He's an Egyptian-born computer software engineer, and he currently is the chief business officer of Google X. Both of them suffered tragedies in their life. 
husband in the case of Cheryl Sandberg passing away unexpectedly, a son in the case of Mo Gaudat. Both of them used the tragedy as an opportunity to find out how to strengthen themselves, how to overcome hardships, how to build a life that can ultimately achieve joy and happiness, even in the, the face of very, very, very great difficulties. And uh, as I said, every book that I've mentioned on the show for, uh, for the last uh, year and a half, it's all posted onto our Facebook page. You have to go to People of the Book on 101. Go to Facebook and then search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Find all the books there. And I've also posted a video of Cheryl Sandberg in conversation with Adam Grant. That's the two co-authors of Option B. Um, Adam Grant lectures psychology at Wharton and uh, it's, a, it's, it's a conversation that they had at Wharton University. Uh, a very powerful, very powerful video. And also Mo Gaudat being interviewed uh, by Google, at Google, talks at Google about his book Solve for Happy. So those two videos are posted onto our Facebook page, but both the books as well. I mean, the videos just give you a taste. They don't really replace the books themselves, but very powerful videos. Now, we're going to go to two books that have a South African connection. One, written by a South African author, even though the book sets, uh, not, is, has no connection to, the actual book isn't in any way connected to South Africa. And the second one, an American who wrote a futuristic book set in South Africa. So the, the first one is called The White Road, and it's by Sarah Lotz. Sarah Lotz is a South African author. This is her third, well, this is her third book she's written by herself. She does have a, a collaboration, um, and I think S.L. Gray is the, the, the name of the collaboration. But this book is uh, her third solo effort. The first book, The Three, when it came out, um, was published not by a South African publisher, which is norm, the normal route that you know South African authors go, but was picked up by Hodder and Stoughton in the UK. It was published internationally. Stephen King picked it up and he gave her uh, a shout out hard to put down. He said one of his one of his one of the most powerful books that he had read. His second book, Day Four, also received great uh, was received with ecstatic reviews and. Uh, Built her following, her, her fellowship up even more than her first book. And now her third book's come out. It's called The White Road. Sarah Lotz is one of a group of South African authors living in the Cape who write dark fiction. Um, the, 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 I suppose the, the, you can't even say the head girl of the group anymore because they've all achieved so much success. But Lauren Bukas, uh, who wrote The Shining Girls, um, is part of this group as well. They write dark fiction, but they deal with real issues. This book, The White Road, deals with people who push themselves to the extremes, uh, either going caving but in really, really dangerous caves or climbing Mount Everest, uh, people pushing themselves to the extremes. The book starts off with Simon Newman, who works on a he's one of uh, uh, one of two people who who work on a website that basically shoots videos of people who've died in the most terrible or you know in in, situ- in situations where they, they were pursuing a like an extreme sport there's a cave um somewhere in Wales where a few years before three boys died in the cave 
and the cave has been locked, and no one's allowed to go in, but he and his partner decide to they're going to film uh, footage of the the dead bodies in the cave and post it on their website. It's that type of a website, and um, it'll push up the 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 website's called Journey to the Dark Side, and this will push up the amount of um, views that their website gets. And while he he meets Simon Newman is going into this cave, uh, and he meets a uh, quite a mysterious man who's going to lead him through the cave. Now it's, it's illegal because the cave has been locked up since these three boys died in the cave during a flash flood that resulted in the the, the stream going through the cave becoming a, a raging torrent. It's been it's been locked up, but they break into the cave and they walk through the cave. And the first fifty pages of the book is his experience going through the cave with this stranger who's quite a quite a quite a wild man and while they're in the cave there is a flash storm and the stream at the bottom of the cave becomes a raging river and only Simon Newman escapes from the cave he is traumatized by the experience uh, I have to say that that part of the book was so real. It was so scary. It was dark. Uh, the power that Sarah Lotz puts into her writing to create something that I'm a claustrophobic person. I, I find going into caves, even if something like the Kanga Caves, could be quite a traumatic experience. Reading this, it was almost like a pure voyeurism, putting yourself in a situation that makes your spine tingle just when you think about it in the broad light of day and he's in this cave, he's trapped uh, he's with three dead bodies and he's being attacked by the man who's leading him through the, the caves, it was extremely, extremely powerful writing uh, really recreating something that's really dark, really scary and you're just facing, even though you're sitting in the brightest lights in, 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 in your house, reading this at night, you really feel like you're in the cave there with this really, really, really macabre setting. Then after that, the book changes and uh, Simon Newman, this a few years later, he's getting over the 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 shock the basic the post the post traumatic uh stress that he's experienced from this really horrifying horrifying uh walk through the cave a few years later the website needs to pick up more viewers and um he decides to climb mount everest but not to get to the top of mount everest a very very famous uh woman mountaineer died on the mountain and now his partner sends him up to Everest to take a video of her frozen body uh, it's really macabre uh, he goes but on the on the in the group that he joins he meets this this mountaineering uh, this mountaineer's son Juliet's son um, and Mark and he he builds a close relationship with Mark and things happen up on the mountain in the extreme 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 conditions of Mount Everest that change him as well uh, I don't want to give too much of the story away but here Sarah Lott creates once again that extreme experience of climbing Mount Everest going from one camp to the next acclimatizing the body to 
the the thin oxygen levels high up in the mountains, how their bodies have to adapt to living in living living in conditions that are not normal for human existence, and she in she 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 puts into the story the the dead mountaineer Juliet's diary, and you have two views of climbing the mountain: Juliet from her diary, and then. Simon Newman, who's climbing the mountain to find Juliet. And through both of their minds, you get this from Juliet's diary, but you also get it from Simon, is a phenomenon that happens and it's been recorded and researched. The third man factor, that when people are in these type of situations, they imagine that there is a person who's not there, but they are there with them. And we see how both Juliet is spooked and traumatized by her third man factor and how Simon is also similarly traumatized by his third man factor. Here they are at conditions that push a human to the extremes beyond normal life, down underground in caves that are very da- very dangerous and very difficult to get through, and then climbing Mount Everest. And it's the two stories, Juliet's story and then Simon's really macabre story of going and filming dead bodies in these, these situations underground in caves or on the top of Mount Everest to post on his website. You don't really feel sorry for Simon because this isn't the type of activity that creates sympathy in a reader, but Sarah makes him a really well-formed character. What happens on Mount Everest? <coughs> Who comes down? And then how does the story continue? It's a dark story, but for anyone who, who is a mountaineer or anyone who goes caving, there are these scenes in the book that will take you to the 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 the, 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 the mountainside, or it'll put you out down there under the un, deep under the ground. You will experience that. I suppose it's like the rush of adrenaline that people experience that makes them go and do these extreme sports. Uh, because Sarah Lotz is a South African author, I have put a request through to interview her, and if that does come through, hopefully by the end of this month we'll be able to interview her and ask her what motivated her to write a book like this, and just also in general about how she experiences her newfound literary and commercially, commercial fame being one of South Africa's most prominently read thriller writers. Now, the other book that's got a South African connection is called The Prey of Gods. It's by Nikki Drayden, and it most probably won't have the wide readership that it should, that it deserves to get. Now, the story behind this book is that Nikki Drayden, who's an American, <coughs> came to South Africa in her sophomore year in university to to be a counselor, to be a student, uh, to be a... Um, she says, a peer counselor for a program that focused on renewable energy and environmental protection. She stayed in Port Elizabeth for a while, most probably like an, an exchange student program, and she built relationships with people in, Texas, in, 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 uh, in Port Elizabeth. She then went back home to Texas, to America, where she lives, and she, she became a short story writer. And she then decided to write a futuristic novel, 
set in Port Elizabeth. So I don't imagine Port Elizabeth is on the literary map that much. But now all of a sudden, here an American writing a book set in Port Elizabeth, set in the year 2064, or 20, is it 2064, puts Port Elizabeth, 2064, puts Port Elizabeth on the science fiction map. I had a copy of the book. Then I saw a few weeks ago that the Wall Street Journal put this book on the sum, their summer reading list. And I felt well, this is absolutely amazing that a story set in South Africa, very obscure book would have been, is now all of a sudden being trumpeted by the Wall Street Journal. And then I found um, an, an another on another website, it says the New York Journal of Books, that it was reviewed, but not just a review. The, the, the reviewer, who's a prolific author of young adult and adult novels, short fiction and horror, Jake Barbel, doesn't just say it's a good book. He says, Drayden has knocked it out of the park with this novel. An excellent piece of fiction that is levels above any of the summer reads coming out. Now, what is the story about? In South Africa, the future looks promising. Okay, that's very, <laughs> that's how we know that this is science fiction straight away. Personal robots are making life easier for the working class. The government is harnessing renewable energy to provide infrastructure for the poor. And in the bustling coastal town of Port Elizabeth, the economy is booming thanks to the genetic engineering industry, which has found a welcome home there. So this is 2064. Yes, the days to come are looking very good for South Africans. That is, if they can survive the current challenges. What are the challenges? It's a different set of challenges. A new hallucinogenic drug is sweeping the country. An emerging AR, that's artificial intelligence uprising, and an ancient demigoddess hell-bent on regaining her former status by preying on the blood and sweat, but mostly the blood of every human she encounters. It's up to a young Zulu girl, powerful enough to destroy her entire township. A gay teen plagued with the ability to control minds, a pop diva with serious daddy issues, and a pop and a politician with even more serious mommy issues, they band together to ensure there's a future left to worry about. Fun and fantastic, Nikki Drayden takes her brilliance as a short story writer and weaves together an elaborate tale that will capture your heart even as one particular demi-goddess threatens to rip it out. And this is what um, Drake Barbell, who's an author, says in the New York Journal of Books. He, quotes, he starts with a quote of, from the book. The three men stand like terrified statues in their movers' overalls, all lined up against the brick wall of her apartment. Slowly. Sydney locks the door and lingers, so their minds go to all the dark places. Anticipation is the worst kind of torture. Humor is hard to nail down. Many authors try and fail, spectacularly. Add in the attempt to create a novel that bends genres, with a mix of sci-fi, fantasy, paranormal and mythology, and the risk of failure rises exponentially. Then set that novel in a near-future South Africa, with characters as varied as a gay teenager, a cross-dressing politician with dreams of diva stardom, a young child learning to be a goddess, and an old goddess struggling to survive as a nail tech. And well, not an easy target to hit, except Nikki Drayden does just that. Not only does she hit the target, she blows it away. With a perfect mix of speculative genius, horror, and satire, Drayden brings 
all of her varied characters to life in a way that allows the humor to come through without mocking any of the genres she mixes to create her setting and narrative. The above quote is a perfect example. It reads like a horror, as it should. But within the context of the story, it is a perfect example of one of the characters simply struggling to survive and get by in a world that has forgotten the power and magic that created her. The reader will feel sorry for her victims, but at the same time, they will feel sorry for Sydney because she almost doesn't have a choice. Almost. Prayer of God goes well beyond humor or satire. It delves deep into love and loss, sexual identity and personal identity. How anyone finds their way in a world that refuses to slow down, refuses to look at what came before it without contempt, refuses to take a break and let everyone simply be. In short, Drayden has knocked it out of the park with this novel. There is something for everyone and it blends so many types and genres that it would be hard for any reader not to find some aspect they absolutely love. Prayer of, Prayer of Gods is an excellent piece of fiction that is levels above any of the summer reads coming out. So that's quite a, quite a, quite a positive review for um, the Prey of Gods. And as I said, it was in the Wall Street Journal, which is the bastion of you know, conservative and business uh, business readers. It was on their list of summer reading. It's written by an American set in South Africa. And if that doesn't pique your interest, <laughs> maybe one of the other books that I'm going to get to soon will. Uh, we're going to have an ad break right now, and I'll be back with a book that I call Harry Potter for grown-ups. If uh, Pray of Gods wasn't Harry Potter enough for you, we've got another one up our sleeves. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is Stephen Kravitz. It's People of the Book. We're getting through... I don't think I'm going to get through all the books I plan to get through today, so whatever we don't get through today will be carried over to next week. Uh, All the books that I've reviewed today have been posted on Facebook. We've mentioned... uh, the Cheryl Sandberg book Option B and we've also mentioned uh, Mo Gaud that's Soul for Happy that's dealing with um, grief, dealing with tragedy we looked at two books with the South African Connection, Sarah Lotz's The White Road uh, dark fiction set in both caves deep underground on the top of Mount Everest and then the, the third man factor, this feeling that's when people are in these positions of great extreme conditions, that this an imaginary person who's a real person following them. And then we looked at a, 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 a science fiction fantasy novel written by an American but set in all places in Port Elizabeth in South Africa. That's The Prayer of Gods. And then I said we've got um, Harry, Harry Potter for, for grown-ups next. This is called Rather Weird. It's by Andrew Caldecott. Uh, Caldecott. He is a, he's a distinguished QC in, 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 in London and he's also written drama, uh, plays which have received good reviews. His book, Rather Weird, is, uh, it's, 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 uh, like an alternative reality world, like a Narnia, but for, this is really for grown-ups. Rather Weird stands alone. There are no maps and no guidebooks. Despite the tangled architecture, the avant-garde signs and offbeat rituals. 
cast adrift from the rest of England in the Elizabethan era by Elizabeth I, its independence is subject to one disturbing condition. Nobody, but absolutely nobody, is allowed to study Rotherweird or its history. So it's basically a closed community that is very, very interested in science and uh, magic. For beneath the enchanting surface lurks a patch of slippery sky and a secret so dark that it must never be rediscovered, still less never reused. But secrets have a way of leaking out. When two very different inquisitive outsiders arrive, they both strive to connect past and presence, and presence until they and their allies are drawn into a race against time and each other, with lethal and apocalyptic consequences. Uh, a few years ago, there was a book called uh, Jonathan Strange and Miss Donarol. It's been made into a British miniseries. It was like an alternative history with a lot of uh, magic running through it. That book is rather weird, falls into the same genre as Jonathan Strange and Miss Donarol, the Gorman Gast series of books, or The Name of the Rose. It's a very, very... Um, Different type of fantasy, but it's it's more an adult fantasy book than it is a, a children's fantasy book. A lot of psychology put in as well, and secrets. Uh, and it's the first in the projected trilogy. Now, the next book that I want to talk about is a nonfiction, and it's a it's a very very topical book. It's about Uber. The book's called Wild Ride, and it is written by a Fortune magazine journalist. That's Adam Lashinsky. I have tried to be, I've tried to make technology, technology as ability to disrupt society and tech companies a focus of this book show because I do think that books are still the best way for us to encounter the great topics and the great trends that are being unleashed upon the world. And I think there's almost no greater disruptor in the world of disruptive companies, then Uber. This is inside Uber's quest for world domination. And it's, as I said, it's called Wild Ride. And no one you know, within the world of tech, you have your, your, your high, your high priests. Uh, and they could either be the leaders of tech companies or very often it's going to be the people who are the seed capitalists, the the vulture capitalists for the uh, the sorry not the vulture the venture capitalists behind the uh, the Silicon Valley. One of them, John Dewar, who's the chairman of Kleiner Perkins, most probably the most powerful venture capitalist. I mean, people do call them vulture capitalists as well. He said on this book a must read for everyone interested in business, technology, and the future. Now Adam Lashinsky wrote a book in 2012. Uh, called Inside Apple and was taken as one of the classics of Apple's story and then he was scouting around for his next big story and somehow he alighted on Uber but this was four years, five years ago before Uber is what it current before it became what it currently is now he communicated with uh, Travis Kalanick who's the, the CEO of Uber the founder the visionary founder and the, the the very abrasive CEO of, of of Uber, and he spent a lot of time tracking Travis Kalanick, and that, together with a lot of other research, interviews with other people, went into this book Wild Ride. Now, it really, really is a wild ride because 
Uber is just a few years old. It is valued at most probably, I think, $60 billion. It's, it's the most valuable unicorn. A unicorn is a Silicon Valley company that before it's listing, it still is worth a billion dollars. This is the most valuable unicorn in Silicon Valley. But Uber's ride isn't over. Uber's ride is going to continue, and it's going to be a wild ride for a while. Since this book was published, Travis Kalanick has stepped down as the CEO of Uber, but he still is the biggest shareholder. But because of his very abrasive personality, he himself realized that it wouldn't be in the company's best interest for him to remain in the driver's seat. But he is still one of the dominant personalities in the company. So the book hasn't lost any of its value with that one change. Uh, this, this gives you a front row seat in what is going on in Uber, what type of a company Uber is, what it takes to be one of these masters of the Silicon Valley universe. Uh, this is what he says in his introduction. I first met Travis, Travis Kalanick in July 2011, less than a year after he'd become CEO of Uber. The company was then was tiny then, with just several hundred licensed limousine drivers using its app, all in San Francisco. Even then, though, Uber had achieved the sheen of a San Francisco startup on the rise. But Uber, Uber was still two years away from adopting the strategy of one of its competitors to allow ordinary people to use their own cars to make money via Uber's app. So while Uber really was cool and buzzy, it hadn't yet gone through the explosive growth that would make it the most highly valued startup in the world. At that meeting, Kalanick was then 34 years old, laid, and he laid out the basics of his career. A native of Los Angeles, he'd been a computer engineering major who dropped out of UCLA to work for a company called Scour, begun by some of his classmates. Scour was a proto-Napster, and the entertainment industry shortly sued it out of its existence. He parlayed the file-sharing concepts of Scour to start another company, Red Swish, with the idea of turning litigants into customers by building peer-to-peer software for entertainment companies to use for legitimate purposes. Six long years later, he sold that company to Akamai, the dominant software competitor in its field, for just enough money for Kalanick to join the club of San Francisco entrepreneurs who had achieved an exit a financing event that put some cash in his pocket. During our first chat, Kalanick also told me how Uber got started. It was an after-the-fact creation myth, which nearly every successful Silicon Valley startup has, about how he and a friend named Garrett Camp had an epiphany when they couldn't catch a cab during a blizzard in Paris in late 2008. If only there was a way to turn one's phone into a taxi dispatcher. The germ of the idea was Garrett's. Kalanick said. Mine was the business architecture. Three years later, Uber was already beloved by its young, largely male customer base. People like Kalanick and Camp, who, were th- who are thrilled with the transformative power of pushing a button on their smartphones and having a Lincoln town car show up at their doorstep. Given how contentious Uber's relationship with its drivers would one day become, Kalanick on that day, in mid-2011, chose to emphasize how much he loved Uber's drivers. He said he gave them hugs whenever they visited Uber. When they came here to Uber's modest offices at 4th and Market Streets in San Francisco, I say, let's hug it out. 
he recounted the tale of the company's first crisis, the day of the previous fall when the city of San Francisco served Uber to cease and desist letter. The company then, named Uber Cab, decided the city had no jurisdiction over it. First, because it was merely a technology platform that owned no cars and employed no drivers, and also because its partners drove limos, not taxis. So we registered the, so we removed the cab from our names at Kalanick, and Uber otherwise ignored the city's demands to stop arranging rides. Kalanick was full of confidence in that summer of 2011. Uber already operated in New York and planned to launch shortly in Seattle, Washington, D.C., Boston, and Chicago. Kalanick bragged about the advanced math that went into Uber's calculations of when riders should expect their cars to show up. Uber's math department, as he called it, included a computational statistician, a rocket scientist, and a nuclear physicist. They were running, he informed me, a a Gaussian process emulation, a fancy statistical model to improve on data available from Google's mapping products. Our estimates are far superior to Google's, Kalanick said. I was witnessing for the first time the cocksure Kalanick. I told him I had an idea for a market for Uber. I had recently sent a babysitter home in an Uber, a wonderful convenience, because I could pay with my credit card from Uber's app and then monitor the car's progress on my phone to make sure the sitter got home safely. I didn't have to leave home to do it. I was certain other parents would want to do the same and that Uber would enhance its image by marketing itself to them. Kalanick could have smiled away the idea. Instead, he made it clear he wasn't interested. My idea didn't conform to Kalanick's image of Uber a baller service that allowed well-heeled single men like him to travel around town in high style. Uber's motto at the time was, everyone's private driver. A service for parents to shuttle home their babies' sitters? Lame. Over time, I saw Kalanick out and about in San Francisco, sometimes at the Battery, the tech community's slick private dining club in a converted pre-earthquake marble mill, or at industry conferences. When I told him in a breakfast buffet line that I loved Uber, but didn't want or need to be driven around in a luxury car, he told me to be patient, that a new service called UberX would change my mind about Uber. And by the time Uber became a global phenomenon, I told Kalanick by email in early 2014 that I wanted to write a book about the company. His response was swift and in character. I am a fan of your work and am flattered that you would consider writing a book about Uber, he wrote. However, in my opinion, it is not the time to do it. I'm not sure if you're planning to write the book anyways, but I will make it clear to the folks that I know not to cooperate, and if you are still persistent, I will find another writer to write an authorized book with full access to us to compete with yours. It's not my preference to take this approach, but it is an important topic that I feel strongly about. He ended by writing, thanks, T. This is just the beginning of wild ride and it's not really the ride's not over but it's the ins- it's inside uber's quest for gl- world domination it's supposed the first draft of uber's corporate biography it's by adam lashinsky who is the author of inside apple and he also he's a he's a fortune magazine journalist but it's an it's, a, it's an important time in uber's company's development to take a snapshot and anyone who's interested in disruptive technologies Anyone who's used Uber, anyone who 
It's read stories about Travis Kalanick, the former CEO, but the, one of the founders of Uber. This is a great book to read. So I didn't get through all the books I planned to get through today. We got through six of the eight. Everything I've spoken about is posted on our Facebook page. And as I said, there's videos both by Mo Gaudat and by Cheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant talking about their books, Sold for Happy and Option B. Until next week, good Shabbos and keep reading.